This is the World Bank's Infrastructure Podcast. In today's episode, the first of three on this topic, we discuss why it's important for competition authorities to look carefully at big tech mergers and acquisitions. Yesterday was a typical day. I opened my phone in the morning and checked my messages on text, WhatsApp, Instagram, and Twitter. Then I used Google to search for the nearest gourmet coffee shop. I went to the store, but couldn't find what I wanted, so I ordered it on Amazon Prime. Later in the day, I caught up on my reading on Kindle. I also went for a run listening to my favorite podcasts on Spotify. Then I logged on to my computer to catch up with work on Microsoft Office before Monday's onslaught. For dinner, I found a nice recipe online and afterwards finished an episode on a Netflix series I love. And you know what I thought? Big tech was everywhere. My Apple News update said that we needed to make sure that markets worked well, that there was enough competition in tech markets. So I thought, let's find out how to do this. Good morning and welcome. Our guest today is Professor Michael Katz from Berkeley's Economics Department and Haas School of Business. Among other positions he has held, he was Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Economic Analysis of the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice and Chief Economist of the Federal Communications Commission of the US. He will speak to us on big tech mergers and competition policy. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's lovely to have you here with us. In this first part of the podcast, Michael, I'd like to talk about big tech and why looking at mergers and acquisitions, I'm just going to refer to both as mergers, may be important for competition policy. But first, could you tell me what exactly is big tech and what's so special about them? Um, I'd be delighted to. Before I do, I would like to issue um, a disclaimer, and that is that I work both for and against the firms that are identified as big tech, and I just think it's important that people know that, and that as I put forth various arguments and and we discuss these issues, I just want people to think about the, the merits of what I'm saying and evaluate that on their own. Don't believe me because I'm the one saying it. Believe it because I think I'm making sound arguments and arguments that are based on fact. Now, in terms of your your question, you know, what's big tech? I think right now people tend to mean Amazon, Alphabet, or Google, as it's more commonly known, Apple, and Facebook. People used to also include Netflix, and I think sometimes Microsoft, but they've fallen off. So then the question is, well, what's special about those firms? Why them? And I think there are two answers. One is sort of in the popular imagination, those firms are now instilling fear in a lot of people. They think the firms are too big, that they have too much money, that they're dominating the markets in which they compete, that they're too important in our lives. And there's also, I think, a sort of running concern now that these firms are going to dominate in general purpose technologies, particularly artificial intelligence, that's going to allow them to sort of take over huge parts of the economy. Now, as I said, I think that's the concern in the popular imagination. I think what's special about these firms from the point of view of economics is that they all have um, 
really large economies of scale or really big benefits of size that help drive them. They're in other ways very different, but they do all have the following in common that they're they're big economies of scale in software and IP and intellectual property. And those are really important for these firms. They benefit from network effects where the more people using the service, the more valuable the service is to other people. And also there's what's known as data economies of scale. These companies all collect huge amounts of data. They use it to refine and develop their businesses. And the more data they have, the more they use it, the better they are at using it, which again then creates this advantage of size. Thank you for that, Michael. Now, you mentioned several big tech firms that are American, but of course there are many in other parts of the world, to name one, Alibaba. Would you say that was a big tech firm as well? So that's a, that's a very interesting question. And in fact, I was thinking about that um, earlier when I was thinking, well, what do we mean by big tech? And I think there clearly is a set of firms in China that are sort of the Chinese equivalent of big tech. Although I think when most people talk about big tech, they actually do mean the four American firms. And that's why there's sort of a, an international politics overlay to this issue. There's certainly some tensions, I think, between the U.S. and Europe, for example. To what extent is it the American nature of the firms that is affecting how they're viewed and how they're treated? I think there are analogs in China. I think, though, it's somewhat different. And because a lot of the Chinese firms are so oriented towards the Chinese market, I think they tend to raise fewer issues internationally. I mean, obviously there are some big issues such as claims about um, national security and such, but I do think there's a, a pretty significant difference in how people think about the Chinese analogs to the American big tech firms. But you're right, they do have many of the same features. Okay, they're the same features, but American firms tend to be far more globalized. Um, is what we're saying. Now, what happens to competition in the presence of such increasing returns to scale? Well, one of the big things that can happen is that we see what are known as positive feedback cycles. And let me give you an example to illustrate. When the Apple came out with the iPhone and its iOS software platform, some app developers saw that as a good platform to be on. They developed apps that could run on your iPhone because they said, oh, there are a bunch of people using the iPhone and the iPhone's a good programming environment. Then because those apps were available, more consumers said, the iPhone is something I want to buy because look, it has all these apps. And then additional app developers say, well, look at all these potential customers who have iPhones. I should develop apps for the iPhone. And so you have this back and forth that more iPhone owners leads to more apps, which leads to more iPhone owners, which leads to more apps. So you see this virtuous cycle. And so that's where I think we see there's this, it can be this advantage of size. And now this can affect competition because you could also have firms that don't get that cycle going. So with um, mobile phone systems, we see that this has happened with iOS and Apple. We also see it happen with Google's Android system. But then Microsoft had something known as Windows Phone, and it never took off. And in fact, it collapsed. They couldn't attract enough um, app developers to really get the cycle going. So what happens here then is, as I said, there are these benefits of size. Okay, And so that the firms that succeed could start taking off. But if you don't get one of these feedback cycles going, you ultimately could disappear or just be a weak competitor. Okay, so, so this is an important point. 
Could you go a bit more into why positive feedback cycles actually matter for competition in the market or for the market? Well, because of this effect, you get you can get winner-take-all or winner-take-most outcomes, where the firms that get the positive feedback cycles pull away from everybody else, which then raises a concern about whether we're going to see competition or we're going to just see in every market one firm that's the winner and that dominates. And that is a, a big concern. And But on the other hand, people say, well, maybe we need to think about competition differently in markets like this. And rather than think of a bunch of different firms competing with one another at the same time to attract customers, we have sort of this succession of temporarily dominant firms. And the way competition takes place is you try to become the new dominant firm. You try to displace the firm that was there before you. And you take over, but you may only take over for a little while. And that's something that's known as competition for the market. So I guess what you're saying is that even if you have winner taking all, it may not necessarily be bad. So that's my next question. Is it all good or bad? <laughs> so I would say in, in a sense, it's neither because it's just a consequence of the fact that we have big um, returns to scale. And it can, But I think the thing, while I say it's neither, we do need to recognize, though, that it can lead to problems in terms of competition, and it can raise issues that we need to, to watch for. Because the concern we have is that there won't be competition for the market because at some point, you know, one of the winners will just become entrenched and be impossible to, to displace. And so it's important, I think, for policymakers and competition authorities to do everything they can to make sure that the competition for the market continues to take place. So how do firms actually compete to become the next dominant firm? Suppose there is a dominant firm in the market. How does that firm retain its dominance or become, or, or how does the next dominant firm enter? Uh, so typically, it's going to be through some form of innovation. And in fact, this competition for the market is also sometimes called Schumpeterian competition, named after Joseph Schumpeter, who wrote about the gales of creative destruction. and by by that, what he meant is you could have these firms that seem you know, large and permanent, and yet creative destruction is this process of innovation coming in and displacing the incumbent, an innovator coming in and displacing them. And so that's how we, I think, often think about the competition in this sort of market. But it's really that innovation competition is really the critical aspect. All right. So you're saying that small firms and new entrants try to innovate to become the dominant firm, but... Aren't they at a disadvantage already, given the benefits of size that you've just spoken about? So I'm still finding it hard to see how they become the dominant firm just by bringing a new innovation. How do they get others to try it, to, to know about it? Yeah, you've hit on something that can definitely be a problem in a market like this. And there's also something of a paradox because we're saying, look, in a market like this, entry is really important to industry performance because the bulk of competition is not different incumbents you know, fighting with each other for market share. The core of competition is new firms coming in with new ideas. So entry in these markets is vitally important. Yet at the same time, for the reasons you identified, entry can be really difficult. The entrants, by definition, don't yet have the scale. And that's why innovation is so important. Because if you're able to come up with something that's seen as clearly superior 
we may think of like leapfrog innovation. You jump ahead of the incumbents. Consumers may recognize this, expect you to be the new winner. And if everybody starts thinking you're going to be the new winner, that makes you attractive to them. And then you can start a positive feedback cycle of your own. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we talk about Facebook and social networking and Google and search as being the incumbents now, but they did displace old market leaders, right? Alta Vista was a market leader, for example, in search. Google came in with what was seen as a better search. And that's one of the things that then led people to go to them and got the feedback effects going. Same thing with Facebook displacing MySpace. So can be done, but one should not you know, minimize the difficulties. And that is one of the reasons why there's concern in these areas. You know, you frequently will hear people say things like, well, that's fine. In the past, we had a successive waves of innovation and we had new firms emerge as the dominant firm. But now, this time around, the process has stopped and there'll never be another Google or there'll never be another Facebook. And people do have that sort of concern. Well, if we look at human history, I'm not sure that I would buy that. There's always going to be more and more innovation, I think. So um, are there other ways for entrants to overcome the lack of scale? Yes. And one of them is what's known as two-stage entry. And in a sense, what you do is you try to build up scale somewhere else and then let that scale serve you as you become an entrant in a new market. So the way you do that is you either build up a base of users in another market or with another product, and then you sort of transfer those users over to the business you're trying to enter, or you use the data you've collected from those people to do it. And so let me give you an example, at least some people think was an example. They think that Instagram was on its way to doing this before Facebook bought Instagram. They're saying Instagram is building up a base of users and it's collecting data on those users. And it might be able to use that user base and that information to itself become a full-blown social network and compete with Facebook. So that's a way where in this two-stage entry, you know, phase one is being a photo sharing app. And then phase two is going fully into um, social networking. And of course, there could actually be more than two stages. But the idea there is you build up success somewhere else to get some of these benefits of scale. And then once you've built yourself up in these other areas, you use that to launch an attack in the new market. That's a very interesting strategy and I can see why it works. Now, when there is a new entrant, so we, we see some uh, big firms coexisting in the same space. So obviously they can coexist. Um, and I guess it doesn't always have to be that the winner takes all. So could we talk a little bit about this? No, that's absolutely correct. And there, you know, I think there are people who've pushed back and say this concern about winner take all is overblown. I would say there are certainly people who do make too much of it, but we do see it happen. But we also see the other way where we see multiple firms coexist, even when there are very large economies of scale. And the key to that is that the firms are offering differentiated products, that they're offering products that where one firm's products may appeal to a certain type of consumer and another firm's products appeal to a different one. So I think we see that, for example, with Android and iOS, right? The Google and Apple um, mobile phone operating systems, there are huge economies of scale and increasing returns in mobile phone operating systems. Yet both of those systems are um, prospering. 
because they offer different things to different consumers. So some people pick one and some people pick the other, and you don't see the market fully tip one way or the other. So the key there, though, is that you have some sort of differentiation so that different consumers may make different choices. I understand that differentiated, having differentiated products matters, but I also wanted to think a little bit about these big companies where, you know, they operate in many markets. So they, uh, and you gave one example, I think, uh, earlier on, but because they operate in many markets, you know, they could have fintech versus e-commerce versus something else. So some of these are better in some markets than others, and they learn from these other markets to compete in the market in which they may not have been as good. So uh, could you speak a bit about that? Um, yeah, actually, I hadn't thought about this before you um, raised your question, but a really thought-provoking question. In a sense, what people are worried about, or a lot of people are worried about with these big tech firms, is that they have such good resources and capabilities that they can pursue two-stage entry strategies to enter almost anything. And I do know that, for example, Google has various efforts to use their voice recognition technology and their um, ability to scan documents and have the software act as if it understands the documents and extract information from it to enter into a really wide range of um, industries. Because you think about understanding documents, it's just huge in all sorts of financial transactions. For example, if you're going to get a mortgage, there's all sorts of information that the potential lender has to review, and Google has skills that allow them to, to read the documents and store them. You know, in, in healthcare, in probably most nations, it's still the case that there's an awful lot of stuff that's written down by hand or that's in forms that are not in any sort of um, rigorous order or any sort of centralized database. And so the ability to, quote unquote, read documents and make sense of them with software is something that just could be hugely important in a lot of different industries. So, yes, there is this concern. And that's where there's something of a paradox. And I think the people who are concerned about it are going a little bit overboard because normally we think, well, this is great. You know, we're worried there's not enough entry. And we're worried about firms that do have the ability to do two stage entry somehow being blocked or bought out or stopped from doing it. And I suspect we'll come back and talk about Instagram in that context. Yet here, people are worried that these firms are going to engage in too much two-stage entry. So most of these firms are multi-sided platforms. Are there any additional issues you'd like to bring up regarding multi-sided platforms? So when we say they're multi-sided platforms, what we mean is that these firms are often operating a service that brings two different distinct sets of users together. So in the case of Google and search, you have people who are engaged in search. You know, it could be any one of us <laughs> um, who's listening to this. And then you also have people who are advertisers. And it's bringing those two sides together. Okay, where Amazon is bringing together potential sellers and buyers. And the fact that they're dealing with multiple groups at once, you know, does raise a bunch of issues. Although my own view is, in a way, it's just sort of more of the same, that any firm has to do something to attract its users. Now, here, the firms may have to do different things to attract multiple sets of users. And what that means is that competition authorities need to keep track of more things. They need to think about how all the different user groups are affected by various policies. 
So I guess I would say I'm sort of a little torn on this. I think there are people, there are people out there who say, oh, multi-sided platforms, it's all new. We need to throw out the old playbook. Competition policy will never be the same. And I think that's wrong. I think an awful lot of competition policy carries over. At the same time, it does raise complexities because the fact that we have to keep tr track of multiple user groups at once. And we need to, um, to be careful. But I think we have a big knowledge base on which we can build. So what you just said, Michael, um, makes me think, I mean, all of the effects that we've been talking about actually did exist in some form in markets before. And the reason we're talking about them now is because the digital economy has made the costs of acquiring customers and, you know, and advertisers and, and data just so much more, uh, so much cheaper, like exponentially cheaper. And that's why these problems have become exponentially bigger or much bigger. Is that right? Yeah, I would agree with that, that we, these are all forces that you could point to in the past. I mean, Look, there were big economies of scale in having railroads, and there were the equivalent of That's network right. effects in railroads. And in fact, railroads um, dominated in a lot of ways. There were big economies of scale in producing automobiles. And it used to be, certainly if you looked at the American economy, it was just dominated at the you know the very top. What would be big tech today would have been the, the big automobile manufacturers and oil companies. So we have seen these things before. As you're saying, the big difference is just the degree of it. The fact that because of the internet, these firms can just operate at such a global scale. And I think, but the other thing I think is triggering the the concerns, the public policy concerns, though, is that these firms are collecting almost unprecedented amounts of information about us. And the reason I say almost unprecedented is I don't think most people understand actually just how much information was collected about them in the past by credit agencies and um, potential lenders. I mean, I remember reading about one American bank that had something like 20 or 30 single space type pages of information about everybody in its database. Now it's true today, you, know, you might have, you know, I don't know, gigabytes of data about individuals, but still, even if it's not, you know, unprecedented. It's just there's just so much data about people that at least on the policymaking side, I think people are, are more concerned about it than they used to be. And also just that these firms just are so big. But again, as you said, I think it really is a matter of degree. These are issues generally that we've seen before. Okay. So you're right. Big tech and big tech mergers have been getting a lot of attention. So let's talk about something like Facebook's acquisition of Instagram and WhatsApp. There are calls to unwind these. And I want to ask you, what are the implications uh, of this? We've been talking about the pros and cons of, of mergers. So what are the pros of allowing mergers like this to happen? Well, when you think about the arguments for or against mergers, I think it's useful to think about what the merger is doing in sort of two different categories. One is what I'll call post-merger effects which is traditionally what merger policy has been concerned with. And what I mean by that is you ask, well, if the firms merge, what happens after they merge? And the arguments for mergers typically made is it said that the merger is going to lead to some sort of efficiency, that the merging parties are going to combine some sort of complementary assets where those could be physical assets, they could be their customer bases, they could be um, 
intellectual property, or it could even, you know, it could be things like know-how that one firm has best practices in one area and another firm best practices in a different area, and they can get together and combine best practices. So the argument is that those sorts of efficiencies can lead to lower costs or higher quality products, which will then benefit consumers. So I think that's the biggest argument that's made for mergers or the biggest pro in terms of post-merger effects. I will note it there used to be an argument that I haven't heard in a long time that has also said that mergers are useful in what's known as the market for corporate control, where the idea is that sometimes you'll just have bad management become entrenched. And the only way to get rid of the bad management is for another firm to buy up that poorly managed firm and, and throw them out. Although we don't hear that so much anymore. It's, I think, really much more about efficiencies in terms of post-merger effects. Well, as you could guess, if they're post-merger effects, they're also pre-merger effects to talk about. And what I mean by that is that merger policy, meaning sort of the overall way a government treats mergers, can affect how firms behave before they even propose to merge. So one of the things that is talked about as a, a, many people consider to be a big benefit of allowing these mergers is that you can have small firms innovate where the firm says, look, there's no way I'm going to become the new dominant firm or displace the existing one. So if that's what I have to do, you know, forget it, I'm going home. But if I know that if I start to develop a successful product, some other firm, one of these big tech firms, for example, is going to come along and buy me because they say want the intellectual property I've developed. That gives me an incentive to innovate. That's so-called entry for buyout. So one of the things that people, sort of more conservative commentators on competition policy are concerned about is that if we ban big tech from acquiring smaller firms, that that will stifle investment in this sort of innovation, where you have these little firms saying, look, our exit strategy is to be bought out by a big tech firm, and that's what's motivating us to generate new intellectual property and, and come up with these innovations. So I've said, in summary, those are the two arguments. Post-merger, that we're going to combine assets in a way that's going to make us more efficient and a stronger competitor, and that pre-merger, it's going to incentivize investment and entry for buyout. You know, this effect, this incentive for um, being bought out is actually quite present in many types of countries, not, not just in America, but other places where startups may find it hard to grow into full-size firms. And so I've actually heard um, entrepreneurs say, you know, we'd like to be bought up by Google or Facebook or whatever, because it's very difficult to actually grow in their domestic economies um, and, and reap the benefits of that. Now, what about the cons of allowing mergers? So again, I'm going to talk about it in sort of both post-merger effects and pre-merger effects. In terms of post-merger effects, you know, the biggest concern is that a merger may eliminate competition, that if they didn't merge, the two firms would be going head-to-head -head trying to attract um, customers, and that that head-to-head -head competition would benefit those customers. And that's a concern people have raised with respect to Facebook's past acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp. There's a concern that had Facebook not acquired either of those firms, that they might have evolved into competing social networks and that consumers would have benefited from that competition. We've also seen in the U.S. there have been hundreds of hospital mergers that have ended up being approved. And there's been real concern that 
by merging and, and ceasing to compete in various local markets that those hospitals have been able to raise prices and, and haven't been pushed as hard to have high-quality services. So that's the really the, the biggest concern. I should also mention that what I've talked about eliminating competition, harming consumers or you know harming the people who are buying the firm's products, there's also increasingly concern about the loss of competition to hire employees. And that if you let firms merge, that could be bad for workers. And there I want to distinguish two forms of harm to workers, though, because at least to someone like me, they are different. One is that when the firms become more efficient producers, they may just need fewer workers. And I think it's important not to use that as a a reason to object to mergers, because if you're going to stop innovation and stop technological progress, ultimately that's going to be bad for workers because they're going to be less productive. But what I think absolutely is a problem is where what happens is the two firms merge and they say, well, now that we're one firm, let's stop competing with each other by offering workers higher wages to try to get them to come to one of us or the other. And that loss of competition absolutely is a bad thing. Okay, so that's the post-merger effect, the loss of competition. There's also a concern with pre-merger that, you know, while we talked about entry for buyout as a pro, some people think of entry for buyout as a con in the sense that if I knew I couldn't be bought out, maybe what I do is I go for, Americans would call a home run. I guess if you're British, you'd say a boundary. But you would try to have a major innovation that would allow you to get a positive feedback cycle going, that would allow you to become the new dominant firm. But if the option to sell out to the incumbent is there, you may say, look, that's the more profitable path for us. Let's go for a smaller innovation, something that we know will complement what the incumbents do we not try to replace them, but let's, let's develop something that the incumbent would like so they'll buy it from us. So the possibility of merging as your exit strategy may make you less ambitious. And ultimately, that could end up being bad for the economy. Thank you, Michael. That was a very good lesson in why we look at mergers as part of a competition policy. I think we're going to end our podcast, the first part of our podcast here and uh, until the next episode where we do the second part. Thank you. Well, thank you. This has really been a pleasure. Well, listeners, what did we learn today? Firstly, the overarching goal of competition policy is to enhance consumer, which means our welfare. It aims to do this by limiting monopoly power in markets, looking to entry, exit and pricing, and of course, by supporting innovation. Secondly, mergers, which could make a dominant firm larger, may have an impact on both efficiency and innovation. Thirdly, even in tech markets with large firms and large economies of scale and scope, smaller, innovative firms have found ways to enter. And two-stage entry is one way to do this successfully. Thank you and bye for now. You can find more information about the podcast on worldbank.org forward slash tell me how. If you've got questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can also find us on all popular podcasting platforms. This episode was released in October 2021. Don't forget to subscribe and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.